I had decided to go to the college infirmary to deal with my growing depression. I opened the door where I was reunited with my enraged parents. They looked horrible. Both had lost weight. They had puffy bags under their eyes and their faces looked colorless. They'd aged 10 years in a week. Hey there, and welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story, and the people that craft and tell them. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories. Personal stories. Grit stories. We are in the middle of season number three, dedicated to grit talks and the best of, and today... We have got two stories from the best of our mental health happiest hour. It's a virtual open mic that we started back in the fall of 2020. And that open mic is still going on. I will put a link in the show notes to that event, as well as our other upcoming events. So check that out. We would love to have you. We would love to see you. Maybe tell a story. Maybe just watch. Today's stories are by Tracy Stown, who lives up in New York, and Dory Olds, who also lives up in New York. Tracy's story is about seven minutes. Dory's is a little longer. It's actually adapted from her memoir. So both really interesting, both definitely on point with mental health, and I hope you enjoy them. And again, as always, if there's something from these stories, or maybe more than one thing that you can take away and apply to your stories, I hope you do that, because that is one of our main goals here. A quick favor, and I know I ask this a lot, would you let people know about this podcast? Maybe share it with them on social media, or if you listen on Apple, if you rate and review the podcast, it helps people find it. And we really do want more people to find it. We believe strongly in the personal narrative story. We want more people to be aware of what it is and how it works and how they can use it in their lives. So thanks very much for that. And finally, we've got something new in our transition. Usually we have a short little music piece. Today we've got a longer piece. So just know that you will hear Tracy's story and a song that's a few minutes long. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit out there, but I wanted to give it a shot. And then you will hear Dari's story before we finish up. Thanks so much and let us dive in. I had decided to go to the um, college infirmary to deal with my growing depression. And I had done everything I could not to to face it head on. I told myself that I was feeling really bad because I, I wasn't sleeping enough and I was overworked and I wasn't taking care of myself. But it started to become obvious that there was something more going on. But I still didn't want to I didn't want to go to a, I didn't want to have to face it. I didn't want to go to a doctor. And so I made all these deals with myself that like, I'll start taking better care of myself. I'll, I'll meditate. I'll do yoga, anything not to have to deal with it. But uh, no matter what kind of good face I tried to put on, there started to be cracks in the facade. And my friends started to look at me with like concern in their face and people started to ask me, are you doing okay? Is there, is there anything that you need? Because I, I, I was kind of falling apart. So I had decided to go to student health services. I was going to Boston University at the time and I was pretty unhappy there. The whole atmosphere of the place seemed kind of bleak and gray and, and unhelpful. I went to college before the digital age, back when if you needed to drop off an application or pick up a 
a pamphlet or something, you actually had to go to that office to do that. And it seemed no matter how careful you were about the instructions that you got, whatever office you went to to do something, you were in the wrong place and you got sent somewhere else, probably clear across campus. And it didn't just happen to me, it happened to everybody. And so there was a constant stream of students with folders and pamphlets and papers just crisscrossing the university with kind of a dazed look on their face, trying to find their ultimate destination. And we used to kind of laugh about it used to say, well, you can't spell bureaucracy without BU. And then we would sort of laugh the laugh of the damned because there was no way out of this. And it didn't escape us that a school the size of Boston University with so much support staff was in no way supportive. And I was thinking about transferring out. But I thought, well, before I make a decision that big, maybe I should address what's been going on with me at a doctor because maybe it's not the school, maybe it's me. So thankfully colleges have infirmaries where you can go see a doctor. So I was going to student health services. Now the infirmary at BU works this way. Everybody goes to see the general practitioner and then they ask you irrelevant and invasive questions. And then they decide if they can treat you there or if they have to send you somewhere else. So you would go and they would say, what seems to be the problem today? And you might say, well, I've had a sore throat for a week. And then they would say, well, are you sexually active? Or you might say, I rolled my ankle and I haven't been able to walk on it for several days. And they would say, well, how many sexual partners do you have? So I I was aware of what I was in for. And I went to the infirmary and I got there and I went up to the counter and a woman met me on the other side of the counter. And she said, how can I help you today? And I said, I'm here to see the doctor. And she asked me for my name and my student ID number. And I gave them to her. And she looked in a book. She had an appointment book, a handwritten appointment book. And she she said to me, do you have an appointment? And I said, no, I don't. And she tapped the book and she said, no, you don't. And she pointed where my name should have been and it wasn't. And she said, you need to call to make an appointment first. And I looked behind me at the completely empty waiting room. And I said, can I make an appointment right now? And she said, no. You have to call to make an appointment first. And she pointed at a phone in the waiting room. And she said, you can use that phone, call the number on the phone and make an appointment. So I said, okay. And I figured this was one of those weird bureaucracy things that BU is so well known for. I thought maybe it leads to some central number to make the appointment. So I went over to the phone and I picked it up and I called the number. And it rang in stereo because it rang in the receiver in my ear and at the desk that I just walked away from. And the woman who just sent me away from the desk picked up the phone and she said, student health services, how may I help you? And I said, I'd like to make an appointment to see the doctor. And she said, sure. When would you like to come in? And I said, well, as soon as possible. And she said, well, I have early next week. Can you come in early next week? And I said, yes, I can come in early next week, but do you have anything earlier? And she said, well, I have right now. Can you come in right now? And I said, yes, I can come in right now. And she asked me for my name and my student ID number. And I gave them to her. And I hung up the phone and I walked the 10 feet back to the counter. 
where she met me and looked at me with fresh eyes as if she'd never seen me before. And she said, how can I help you today? And I said, I'm here to see the doctor. And she said, do you have an appointment? And I said, yes, I do. And she asked me for my name and my student ID number. And I gave them to her. And she tapped the book where my name was. And she said, yes, you do. Here it is. And she said, have a seat. It'll just be a couple of minutes. And as I turned around to go sit in the empty waiting room, she gave me a little sly smile. And she said, now was that so hard? And I looked at her and I thought about how unhappy I'd been for the last few months, how miserable I'd been and how my life had been in crisis and how much it took to get me here. And I said to her, I don't think all of that was necessary. And I walked out of the infirmary. And the next semester, I transferred out of Boston University. Niggas must have forgot their alphabet. Let me explain. Here it goes. A is for ambition. Be what I want to be. See past the situation that's in front of me. Doubt is an enemy. Zep, we say fuck them. The irony is they inspire me to love them. G is past go with ignite the cash flow. When eights is put your heart in whatever's your last hope. I is I inspire, but two light the fire. So we be the street's number one supplier. And jazz for them Jordans for my niggas when I make it. Give me two of those strange no name kicks. Earth wind and fire type. Elemental beast. That resembles me And it recounts for LMNOP You the track up like Oh, you impressed Get your bread, kid But never let it go to your head SS for success To be the best T is teach back What you learn that's next Cause you got the power People fall into every action W is right out to life With a passion X is expect to fail Why cease to dream Even when you ain't Catching MZs And that's the alphabet Starting to follow me So A is to attempt to be the change you want to see And D is to be different But tell us what you mean Like are you one of them good guys Or you one of us fiends Either way you gotta eat Uh huh Elevate your mind right Cause F is for the fine life And that's how you define life But I say G is get back to your home And H is help the people That didn't help to along Oh yeah fuck it We go back to F Cause that's for freedom G is keep your good thoughts Cause buddy you gon' need them And H is if your hood stars Buddy you gon' feed them Cause it's bad enough When niggas get to check And get to leaving is for them jump offs, we wanted as kids Looking through the glass, seeing a life we want to live in And there's more money, more problems And N-O, there's no peas And that's pessimistic profits Q, quit thinking and are you still with me And S is stressless and T It's the infinity U Is that it's all about you And that's why your nigga fucked around and left out I VW is very wise And X is this exam But why lie, you got zip If you ain't got fam And that's the alphabet
This is September 75. Two years after the rape in Port Washington, my life kept creaking by. I was 15. My recent conversation with mom loops in my head. I want to die. Mom said, you're just bored. But mom, can't you see I'm busy? She swiveled back to the typewriter to continue writing her latest book on parenting. When I got to Washington Square Park, I beelined to Chuck with the crazy Joe Cocker hair. He hands me six PCP microdots and six acid-soaked paper squares stamped with smiley faces. I said, what's with the paper? Chuck said, let it melt on your tongue, then swallow it, and hang out with somebody just in case you get weird. If life mattered, maybe I'd have been scared off, but all I felt was excitement. The next night in the park, I liked PCP so much that I swallowed two microdots this time. Feeling chilly, I tried to zip up my jacket against the cool September air, but it seemed hopeless. I couldn't get the zipper to work. Why can't I do this, I said to the air, then passed out cold on the concrete. I saw a fiery gate, and out of the flames walked Jimi Hendrix in billowing purple scarves. He smiled and said, welcome, Dory. Welcome to hell. Rushing to Jimmy, I was about to wrap my arms around him, but a man in the park started shaking me. Dizzy, I opened my eyes. Worried strangers came into focus. I just met Jimi Hendrix, somebody muttered spaced out chick. The man who'd shaken me yelled, you stupid kid, we couldn't get a pulse. Your heart stopped and we thought you were dead. Unfazed, I got up and left the park. I bought a soda and guzzled it. The rest of the day was euphoria because I died and Jimmy was on the, was there on the next world. I'll meet you on the next world and don't be late. Back at the hotel, my new friend, the drag queen maid, said he had to work. He told me to hang out with a skinny, effeminate dude wearing purple spandex pants. Do you hustle? Purple spandex asked me. What are you talking about? You mean, do I play pool? No, do you hustle? What do you mean? Can I do the hustle? No, do you sell your body for sex? I laughed. It seemed bizarre that a gay guy wanted to pay me to have sex. Greenwich Village was freaky and I loved it. I didn't know if he was a pimp, but he did put the thought of work into my head. I was plowing through my stolen money and it had only been a few days. I'd need more soon. There were a lot of shoe stores on A Street. I picked one and walked past Shiny, thick-heeled disco boots. Hey, can you give me a job? The man in the store said, do you have experience? No, I said, but I learned fast. Well, what do you do? Anything. Get out of here, kid. He chased me out of the store. Discouraged, I slunk back to the park. Plopping onto a bench, I picked up a discarded village voice. In the one ads, I saw, make $800 a night. Purple spandex guy and hustling popped into my head. If topless dancing paid that much, I wondered how much I could make for selling sex. I called the number from a payphone and set up an appointment. <sighs> Seven days after I'd run away and the day of my topless dancing interview, the police and my parents showed up in the lobby of the Hotel Earl. The drag queen maid waited for me outside and, said, and tipped me off. You better get out of here, girl. They're looking for you. Panic and rage hit. My mouth went dry and my stomach clenched. My new friend Billy said, come on, I know where to go. I ran on fumes at the guys who raped me, at my parents for not protecting me, and at the world for not being fair. Billy and I took off, running south to the West 4th Street subway at West 3rd and 6th Ave.
Once inside the station, we realized neither of us had a token. So Billy and I jumped over turnstiles, laughing about how stupid cops were. Hold it, you two. It was an undercover cop who flashed his badge. Billy said, sorry, babe, I can't go back to jail. And he took off. The officer beelined for me and demanded ID. I had two options. One was to hand him the driver's license I'd stolen from a drunk, possibly dead girl, passed out in her car. And the other was my sister's. I was more nervous of what could happen to me for stealing the unconscious stranger's license than for stealing my sister's card. I handed that over. The second after I did, I realized I'd made the wrong choice. I'd watched enough TV shows to know my last name would be on file. The officer walked over to the token booth for the phone. I decided it was better to die than go back to my parents' house. The subway tunnel beckoned. Iron rails promised an instant solution, death. While recoiling from my past and dreading the future, I was drawn toward meeting my dead hero, Jimmy. I jumped onto the tracks in front of an oncoming E-train. Deafening horns sounded as the speeding steel hurtled at me. The tribal drums beating in my chest and my palms sweating, I ran along the tracks toward the speeding subway. I leaned forward, sprinting, my fists tightened as I tried to ready myself for the moment the metal would ram into me. I slowed as I imagined what that would feel like intense pain, hearing my bones snap. Would I lose consciousness before my face got flattened? I wonder if I'd go into shock the minute the train hit me or if I would feel everything. Dust and grit swirled around me so it was hard to breathe. I nearly gagged as I tried to suck in air amidst the rancid smell of urine and decay. Terrifying thoughts broke through the adrenaline. What if I don't die? What if I lose a leg? Life would be so much worse as an amputee. Helpless, I'd have to go home and live with my parents forever. The outside noise in the tunnel was deafening. That's when I changed my mind. I darted into one of the alcoves along the wall, squeezed my body as tightly as I could, spreading arms, palms flat against the tiled sides. The tip of my sneaker leaned precariously over the edge, tensing my toes, With hands bracing me, I sucked in my gut and pressed my spine as far back as it would go. Dust and grit swirled around, coughing and needing air I inhaled. My teeth felt the grains of dirt. The train sped closer. I held my breath as the train went by. I felt a whoosh of wind. It missed me by inches as it whizzed by. I didn't dare let out my breath for fear I might lose my balance and get dragged. The train began to slow. It was pulling into the station. The horn was still blasting, but the subway eased to a stop. Ah, relief. The train had passed me by. I jumped out of the alcove, back onto the tracks, scampered up the ladder, and the train sat in the station with doors open. I couldn't believe my good luck and collapsed on a seat. I shut my eyes as I waited for the doors to close, but nothing was happening. Over the loudspeaker, We're being held in the station for a police investigation. Oh no, I thought. Then I saw the cop running toward the stop train. I flew out the doors and raced toward the stairs in the station. My purse was weighing me down. I tossed it over a rail into a pit near the platform. It had my money in it, all my drugs. I wanted to go back for it, but I couldn't risk it. I ran up the stairs, taking two at a time, then out of the exit and onto the street. 
Concrete pavement felt reassuring beneath my feet. I quickly scanned the street and spotted an open doorway. Ducking inside, I flew up the stairs. Oh, I was free. He'll never find me. My muscles began to give out. I saw an open door to a room and thought of going inside, but there were rows of Asian women seated at sewing machines. A factory building? A sweatshop? I kept going. The rhythmic clattering of the machines grew fainter. Then I reached the top floor. There was nowhere else to run. I was so out of breath, I collapsed into a crumpled heap on a step. I thought about the purse and my $750 and realized I had no money. I was trying to figure out what to do. I heard what sounded like footsteps running up the stairs. No, it couldn't be. It couldn't be, but it was. The cop was running up the steps. When he got to me, he looked pink and completely out of breath. He looked like a cop from TV, light Irish skin, receding dirty blonde hair and athletic build. He was at least six foot tall. His hand gripping the banister looked strong, like my dad's. In between huffs and puffs, he said, what are you doing? And they panted, you're so young, so pretty. Why are you doing this? He looked worried. His voice sounded sad. I had no idea why he cared, but I immediately tried to use it, hoping I could get him to let me go. Please, mister, I said with my biggest pout. Please don't report me. Just let me go. I have to report you, he said. They shut the whole subway line off because of you. I started to cry. And he gripped my arm and said, come on, we're going to the station. Can we go back and get my purse, I asked, still crying? Yeah, he said, then told me his name was Tom. He scribbled his phone number onto the back of a business card. That's my home number. If you need me, just call. Tom escorted me down the steps and out of the building. When we got back on the street, he pointed to three scruffy men sharing a bottle of vodka. I gave them a dollar to tell me where you went. My life for a fucking dollar. He walked me back to the subway platform without ever letting go of my arm. We both knew I would have run. People stared at me gawking and I heard a little kid say, ooh, she's in trouble. What are you looking at? I hissed at an old lady. I pointed to the pit. It was right where I tossed the purse. I couldn't believe it was there, still there. Tom grabbed it and handed it to me while not letting go of my arm. My wallet was there. The money was too. Incredible. Commuters must have been too busy watching me run from the cop. They never saw me toss the purse. When we got to the station a few blocks away, Tom stopped me outside and whispered, if you have any drugs on you, dump them before they search you. He walked me to a, a restroom and waited outside the door. It felt tragic to throw away my new fancy pipe. Reluctantly, I tossed it in the trash. I had six blotter tabs of acid left and five PCP pills. There was no way I could go home to my parents' house and not be high. So I took a piece of toilet paper and rolled up the drugs and stuck it in my underwear. There's no way I'm letting them search my underwear. I'll demand a lawyer. I'll threaten to sue them. I opened the door. Tom brought me to a room where I was reunited with my enraged parents. They looked horrible. Both had lost weight. They had puffy bags under their eyes and their faces looked colorless. They'd aged 10 years in a week. A tiny seed sprouted in my head. Maybe my parents really did love me. It hadn't just been empty words. Tom, the cop, really did worry about me. The man who'd yelled at me when I overdosed in the park really was shaken. He didn't know me, but felt frightened for me. He didn't want me to die. That tiny crack in my bravado was just enough to let in a faint 
Shimmer of Hope. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to Tracy Starin and Dory Olds, both in The Big Apple. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including the 99-second Story Slam, the Mental Health Happiest Hour, Motown Flash, and our May 1 fundraiser for Ukraine right here in North Carolina. And if you could help us out, in addition to listening, which we really appreciate, let people know about the podcast, maybe share it on social media. And if you listen on Apple, rating and reviewing really helps people find the podcast. We want more people to find the podcast. Thanks so much for that. And that is all for episode number 76. Boom.